0: Greetings, students, as always, is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, Truman and the Origins of the Cold War, Part 2. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the slide, Israel. In May 1948, the State of Israel was established as a Jewish homeland in the Levant, but first, let's explore a little background to help contextualize the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict. After Jews suffered oppression in Europe, many adopted the idea of Zionism, meaning the creation of a homeland for Jews in Palestine. Now, Palestine is derived from the older term Philistine, referring to the Mycenaean Greek invaders in the 12th century BCE who battled the ancient Hebrews in Canaan, though there is no direct connection or ancestry between modern Palestinians and ancient Philistines. The first waves of Jewish settlers who went to Palestine were called Aliyah, so the first, second, or third Aliyah means these waves of Jewish immigrants. Zionist settlers bought unused or unwanted land from Ottoman Empire authorities in the first years prior to the First World War and established small communities that bloomed in the desert. From 1918 to 1948, the British held Palestine as an imperial possession. Though after 1930, the British attempted to restrict Jewish immigration due to hostility from local Arabs. Now I say local Arabs because as of this point, there is no national Palestinian identity. And it wasn't created until after 1930 because local Arabs aren't all Muslims. There's a substantial amount of Arab Christians as well. So there are actually internal conflicts that go back centuries between Muslim and Christian Arab tribes in Palestine, whereas today, Palestinians are mostly Muslims, as Christian Palestinians have declined in numbers for various reasons, though they still make up a sizable portion of people in various regions of Israel and Palestine. There were also conflicts between European Jewish settlers and local Arabized Jews, So, as you can see, this area is filled with tensions. These tensions broke out into atrocities by Arabs against Jews, with Jews responding in kind, which resulted in hundreds of casualties on both sides. As Jews attempted to flee Europe with the rise of Nazism, the British continued to refuse their entry into Palestine, so hundreds of thousands immigrated illegally to the region, though many were turned away or deported. Over time, Jews came to resent British rule, which forced Orthodox Jewish ceremonies to conform to British gender norms. Despite these anti-Semitic policies, local Arabs were still upset at Jewish presence, as well as the policies of the British authorities. So they launched the 1936-1939 Arab Revolt, which claimed 5,000 Arabs killed and over 200 British and 500 Jewish killed. By the time the revolt collapsed, the British had written the 1939 White Paper, which stated that Palestine would be formed into an independent state for both Jews and Arabs, though Arabs would be in the majority and run the government. Then, the Second World War broke out, and the British turned their attention to fighting the Nazis in Europe. During the Second World War, many Jews wanted to leave Europe but they were prevented from coming to Palestine, which resulted in the deaths of thousands. In opposition to this anti-immigration policy in the 1939 White Paper, some Zionist Jews in Palestine led terrorist attacks against British authorities, including the bombing of the King David Hotel in 1946. Jews had been careful not to target British military installations during the war, since they wanted the British to win against the Nazis. But after the war, with the knowledge of the Holocaust, they demanded that immigration be opened up again. Well, in February of 1947, as a result of the devastation of the Second World War and the resistance of Jews and Arabs, Great Britain decided to abandon their presence in Palestine and left the region to its own devices. On November 27, 1947, the United Nations passed the Partition Plan for Palestine which would give the majority of the region to Arabs while granting territory to Jews that was greater than their actual presence. While the Jews were jubilant because they had land of their own, the Arabs were upset that they did not control the whole region in a single Arab-dominated government, and this resulted in a civil war between Arabs and Jews from 1947 to 1948. In this conflict, there were murders, reprisals, and counter-reprisals, which ripped the region apart and killed hundreds. Then, Jewish enclaves were blockaded by Arab forces. Israeli armored transports that attempted to deliver supplies were attacked and suffered high casualties. While some Jewish settlements were blockaded, others were massacred, which resulted in Arab settlements being massacred by Jews as well. This led to an exodus of 450,000 Palestinians from the region, as well as the consolidation of Jewish settlements for defense. In response to these massacres, the Palestinian exodus, and a greater desire for power, other Arab nations joined the fray. On May 14, 1948, the British Mandate officially ended. Israel declared its independence, and the conflict expanded into the Arab-Israeli War when Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and Egypt simultaneously attacked Israel. So now Israel is in a fight for its very life. Now at this time, America is not an ally of Israel, so Jews had to find other alternatives. For instance, they would forge bullet casings from women's lipstick holders that were made of brass. Then, in a surprise move, Stalin decided to support the Israelis indirectly and authorized Czechoslovakia to sell arms to the Israelis. While the American government did not officially support the Israelis, The first Israeli air force was founded by Milton Rubenfeld, a United States pilot who was accompanied by a handful of others who flew German planes all the way across the Mediterranean to aid Israel against the Egyptian air force. The Arabs were determined to win the war and either unite the region into a single Palestinian state or merge it with a Transjordan. A Saudi Arabian leader even warned Truman that if Israel was established, the Arabs would quote, lay siege to it until it dies of famine. Despite being outgunned and outnumbered, the Israelis fought on and eventually secured their victory, capturing all the territory they were promised in the 1947 partition plan as well as 60% of Palestinian land. As a result, over 700,000 Palestinians fled the region and 250,000 Jews were expelled from Arab countries who then moved to Israel. In the three years after Israeli independence, 700,000 Jews emigrated to Israel, and many asked if the United States would recognize the new country. Well, members of the U.S. State Department and Defense Department objected to it, and Truman's own wife was a rabid anti-Semite who did not allow Jews inside the White House. Despite this opposition, Truman recognized the state of Israel anyway. Because of his sympathy about the Holocaust, His desire to preempt Soviet influence there, and his attempt to secure Jewish American voters. Ever since then, Israel's existence has been extremely controversial and remains so to this day. Please advance to the next slide entitled Global Threat. In June 1948, Stalin blockaded Berlin, Germany. If you recall, Germany had been divided into zones of occupation under the French, United States, British and Soviet Union. Well, Berlin was also divided, but it lay deep within the Soviet zone. So Stalin managed to cut off railway access to the city. Why is he doing this? Most likely he's trying to prevent the US, French, and British from unifying their three zones into a single West German government. In response to the blockade, the United States began the Berlin airlift. And so every day for nearly a year, U.S. planes dropped thousands of tons of supplies on the western part of the city. By May 1949, Stalin eventually ended the blockade, and by the end of that year, Germany was permanently divided into two separate countries, West Germany and East Germany. In April 1949, a treaty was signed in Washington, D.C. that formed the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. Member countries included Canada, Iceland, Denmark, Norway, Portugal, Greece, Turkey, Britain, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and the United States. The key clause of the treaty stated quote, An armed attack against one or more shall be considered an attack against them all. End quote. And so this is a military alliance. And joining NATO in peacetime is a major departure from US foreign policy, and signals that the United States have moved away from isolationism and towards permanent interventionalism. We should also note that one of Stalin's greatest fears was that West Germany would eventually join NATO, and they ultimately did so in 1955. And since then, a key Russian policy has been attempting to undermine the alliance and peel members away which Vladimir Putin has expertly done in recent years through counterintelligence, propaganda, and electoral interference. Then in August 1949, the USSR detonated its first atomic bomb, and so the American monopoly on atomic weapons had only lasted four years. How did this happen? Good old-fashioned espionage. As a result of this turnabout, the Red Scare intensified, and Truman and the Democrats drew heavy criticism. By October 1949, communists had taken control of China. Since 1927, Chinese nationalists had been fighting Mao Zedong and his communists in a brutal civil war. But by 1949, Mao had gained the upper hand and the nationalists were forced to retreat to Taiwan. Mao took over the entirety of mainland China and proclaimed it the People's Republic of China. This now meant that 500 million people, or one quarter of the world's population, had joined the communist camp. Critics cried that Truman had lost China, and many Americans believed that communism was a global, monolithic force, meaning that all communists were the same. But in reality, the Chinese communist victory was the product of a long, homegrown movement rather than an international Soviet-led communist conspiracy. Going forward, the UN Security Council refused to seat Chinese communist representatives, and there was a burning question, would China ally with the Soviet Union? Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Red Scare. In February of 1950, American fears were confirmed with a Sino-Soviet treaty signed in Moscow, China and the Soviet Union had agreed to help one another in case of an attack. And to Americans, this seemed to confirm the fear of a global monolithic communist threat. Though as we will see in the coming lectures, there was no such global monolithic threat as you could divide communist countries against one another. Despite this, the myth of globalistic communism will lead America to make numerous foreign policy foibles. Also in February 1950, Senator Joseph McCarthy, a Republican from Wisconsin, gave a speech at a women's club in West Virginia, saying that he had a list of 205 communists in the State Department, mostly the Asia Department, and that is why China had been lost. We now know McCarthy was just lying through his teeth and was simply playing politics. Over the next four years, McCarthy led a Senate investigative committee like HUAC, to investigate people in government, the film industry, education, and accused many of being communists. But this actually goes far beyond the Senate, because when you get a subpoena to come before McCarthy's committee, you are immediately marked or blacklisted from your profession, and you could lose your home because banks decide to pull your mortgage because they are not able to give loans to communists. You would lose your job, your friends, and everything just because someone called you a communist in public. We'll describe this more in detail later on, but suffice it to say, McCarthy rarely had proof and ruined dozens of lives. In response to the Sino-Soviet alliance, the National Security Council produced a document called NCS-68 in April 1950, which said, quote, The assault on free institutions is worldwide now. And in the context of the present polarization of power, a defeat of free institutions anywhere is a defeat everywhere. And so the United States must, quote, strike out on a bold and massive program of rebuilding the West's defensive potential to surpass that of the Soviet world. So this calls for a drastic increase in military spending, which by 1953 had tripled. And NCS-68 becomes a key US document during the Cold War. This policy was seemingly confirmed and put to the test in June 1950, when 80,000 North Korean soldiers invaded South Korea. Please advance to the next slide entitled Prelude to the Korean War. Korea was a Japanese colony from 1910 to 1945. And in August 1945, the Japanese teetered on the verge of defeat so the Soviets invaded North Korea, and the Americans invaded South Korea. In the aftermath of the war, the two countries agreed to temporarily divide Korea at the 38th parallel, and the UN approved. From 1948 to 1949, Soviet and American troops withdrew, but Korea remained divided, with separate governments being established in the North and the South and a civil war raging leaders in the North and the South asked the superpowers to help them unify the country militarily, but the United States declined to help the South's oppressive leader, and Stalin repeatedly declined to help Northern leader King Il-sung. But then in January 1950, U.S. Secretary of State Dean Acheson announced that the United States' defensive perimeter did not extend to include South Korea. And so buoyed by this, Stalin gave permission to Kim to invade, who promised the war would be ended within three days. This is why it is vitally important to be very careful with one's words in foreign policy, and to make sure you have experts in place rather than political hacks. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Korean War. By June 1950, North Korean forces had rolled into the South and took the capital of Seoul within a week. South Korean forces retreated all the way back towards Pusan in the extreme southeast of the country. Truman's response was, quote, We can't let the UN down. So the UN Security Council took up the Korean issue. But there was a problem. The Soviet Union had veto power and could veto any UN attempt to intervene on behalf of South Korea. Unluckily for the Soviets, though, their delegates to the Security Council absent because they were boycotting the UN's non seating of communist Chinese delegates. So the remaining nations of the Security Council voted to send an international force to Korea. And command of the force, which consisted mostly of US troops, was given to General Douglas MacArthur, who had been overseeing the US occupation and rebuilding of Japan since the end of World War II. MacArthur dispatched a huge amphibious force towards Incheon, just west of Seoul, and behind the North Korean army. UN forces caught the North Koreans by surprise and pushed them back beyond the 38th parallel all the way to the Yalu River on the North Korean-Chinese border. MacArthur never envisioned that the Chinese would intervene and bragged that he would quote, have the boys home by Christmas, end quote please advance to the next slide entitled, Korean War II. In November of 1950, 300,000 members of Mao's People's Volunteer Army crossed the Yalu River and pushed UN forces back south of the 38th parallel. American troops suffered greatly as they were surrounded by Chinese troops and fought a series of defensive battles, most notably at Chosen Reservoir where 30,000 Americans battled day and night against 120,000 Chinese soldiers. The Chinese attacked relentlessly and suffered horrendous casualties in the process. American troops were hard-pressed and after weeks engaged in a ragged retreat to the port of Hungnam. While both sides claimed victory, the Marines had chosen had went through hell and lost over half their numbers as a result, while Chinese casualties amounted to over 48,000 men. MacArthur proposed that UN forces retaliate by blockading China, bombing Chinese bases in Manchuria, and, quote, severing Korea from Manchuria by laying a field of radioactive wastes, the byproducts of atomic manufacture, across all major lines of enemy supply. The Truman administration, fearful of the Sino Soviet alliance, disagreed. MacArthur responded by publicly criticizing Truman, which is a violation of the civil military relationship. By April 1951, Truman relieved MacArthur of his command, and many Americans were angry about the firing, while others were happy that civilian control of the military was maintained. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The War's End. So what ultimately happened in Korea? UN forces counterattacked, and by March 1951, they had retaken Seoul and pushed the North Koreans and Chinese back to the 30th parallel. Negotiations between the two sides began that summer and dragged through 1952. Meanwhile, the war dragged on as a bloody stalemate that resembled the trench warfare of World War I. The Korean War became a hot issue for the 1952 U.S. presidential election, when the Republican candidate Dwight Eisenhower promised to go to Korea to end the war. He also secretly threatened to use nuclear weapons if a compromise wasn't agreed upon. Perhaps more importantly, The Chinese were growing tired of the conflict, and also key was the death of Stalin in March 1953, since he wanted the war to continue. In July 1953, the two sides agreed to an armistice, and as a result of the war, the United States suffered 36,568 military deaths, while the Chinese lost over 600,000 men, and the Koreans, both military and civilian, lost 2 million individuals. Today, Korea remains divided, at roughly the 38th parallel. And historian John Gaddis wrote, quote, The only decisive outcome of the war was the precedent it set, that there could be a bloody and protracted conflict involving nations armed with nuclear weapons, and that they could choose not to use them. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Back Home. In February 1951, the 22nd Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified. Which limited presidents to two terms, thereby enshrining in constitutional law the precedent that George Washington had set at the end of his second term. Then, that March, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were convicted of espionage and sentenced to death for leaking atomic secrets to the USSR. While Ethel may have been innocent, Julius was almost certainly guilty, and both were executed in 1953. In November 1952, the U.S. detonated the first hydrogen or thermonuclear bomb, which literally blew birds out of the sky, as this new weapon was far more powerful than any previous iteration. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The Election of 1952. Truman probably could have run for re-election, but he wouldn't have won, since he had a dismal 23% approval rating. Instead, this election pitted the bookish Illinois governor Adelaide Stevenson versus Ike Eisenhower. Ike hadn't even declared himself a Republican until January 1952, but he was a popular American war hero who promised to end government corruption in the Korean War. Stevenson, by contrast, was an intellectual with whom blue-collar and ethnic Democrats did not really identify with. Ike's VP running mate was the California Senator Richard Nixon, who attacked Stevenson during the campaign, calling him Adelaide the appeaser, with a, quote, "...PhD from Secretary of State Dean Acheson's College of Cowardly Communist Containment." End quote. Campaigns really love alliteration. Nixon was also attacked during the campaign and accused of accepting illegal donations. So he responded by going on TV and delivering the, quote, "...checker speech." in which he declared that the only gift he had received was a Cocker Spaniel named Checkers. There's actually a clip on the PowerPoint that you should watch for this speech. Okay, did you watch it? Well, the idea now that Nixon claims he is honest is rather amusing. The larger point is that going forward, being on television and speaking directly to voters is going to be a potent political strategy that many candidates will use. In the end... Ike won a landslide victory, becoming the first Republican president in 20 years. Please advance to the last slide, entitled, Truman's Legacy. Truman became the first and only president to authorize the usage of atomic weapons, ending the Second World War with massive civilian casualties. Truman helped, at least in part, to inaugurate the Cold War between the Soviets and the Americans. He created the Truman Doctrine and the Marshall Plan, which set the precedent for American aid to fight communist expansion. His policies and that of the Soviets led to the division of East and West Germany. He recognized Israel and legitimized the concept of a homeland for Jews. He presided over the Korean War, though it stalemated under his watch. And lastly, he pursued a civil rights agenda, which signaled trouble in the New Deal coalition, setting the stage for white Southern segregationists to split with the Democratic Party 20 years later. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.